This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. David, it's really cool to have you on, man. Thank you for joining us today. Ledge, thanks so much for having me here today. So if you don't mind, would you give a little bit of an intro? Like, you're an interesting guy. You came to us in podcast land, and you have a whole lot going on. So I'd love to hear the story. What are you doing? How'd you get there? What are you working on today? Yeah, thanks so much, Ledge. So back in 2010, I was beginning my career when I was finishing undergrad in actuarial science. Uh, I was working for Aflac and using IBM mainframes and COBOL and all these archaic programming languages. And the chatterbox around the water cooler was starting around big data and data science and these topics. So I started moving in that realm. I actually, back in 2012, started working with Tableau, which we know just um, in uh, June 2019, big acquisition, 12 plus billion dollars from Salesforce. So software is eating the world and software doesn't have to just be co-located in one location. So I had the opportunity to work for a lot of companies in finance and financial data. And that fast forwarded to me moving to New York in 2015 and going all in on data science. And that's evolved from consulting to teaching to training to doing an AI fellowship uh, with Columbia and most recently kicking off my own AI podcast about six months ago and uh, has been great to see the growth of the industry and the maturation of the industry. Yeah. So talk about the education front there. I mean, it, it must be really cool to help bring the vocabulary to the forefront you know, of, of other professionals. I mean, that one thing that I've noticed when I talk to a lot of people working, you know, in AI, particularly on the sort of platform as a service kind of front, you know, like Azure AI and, and Google Cloud and all the like, they're making these things available. But yet we know behind that is, you know, a great deal of like sort of the data science. And I'm always one that wanted to know, you know, yeah, I want to use the calculator later, but how does this work and where does this come from? And I think there's a lot of interest there from everyone on the education front. It depends on what your goal is, right? Are you an executive who wants to know more about a topic so you can have that buy-in to sell your organization? Are you someone in the pre-sales, sales engineering or solution architecture part? of the organization where you're helping drive uh, business change and digital transformation? Or are you a core engineer who needs to work with code each and every day to create products, to update products, and to have customer success? I think when you think of education, these are the three fields that are most important, executive level, business sales level, and engineering level. In all sides of it, education is critical, and I've been in this industry actually ever since middle school. I used to tutor in math is what I joke with my friends when I was doing math competition, but it's the same thing today. A lot of questions I get from students is how important is math Mm -hmm. when I'm learning data science and I'm learning AI? I say it's absolutely critical, however, treat it with baby steps. So pick up the topics as you're needing to apply them because otherwise it is literally a data lake that you can keep on learning nonstop without implementation. Right, right. Absolutely. And I mean, a lot of people on the engineering side are having to interact heavily with folks kind of in the lab, data science, researcher type of persona. And 
when I talk to people, you know, about designing their organizations now, it's like, we need to introduce this part. I think everybody is starting to realize, like, there's certainly a component of this we need to introduce to our business. We're not exactly sure where, as we start to explore on the research and data side, we need to integrate with our traditional engineering orgs. Those are, those two things kind of operate differently. You don't stick your data scientists on like an agile scrum type of workflow. And yet we need to talk and integrate you know, between those functions. It's just like a whole new way of, of sort of designing orgs and thinking about even research and development and, and all that stuff. What have you seen on the ground there? It's such a transformation of where the world's going. Back in the 1960s and 1970s, the United States launched labs, and a lot of them were for projects of particle physics and discovering neutrinos and doing a lot of research. I've had the opportunity in 2019 to teach at two of those labs, Fermilab in the Chicago area, which is the sister organization of CERN, and Argonne, which originally is where the Manhattan Project started back in the 1960s. These organizations have a lot of PhDs and postdocs and quantitative the folks who are in the traditional languages like C++. But even today, when we're running workshops there through uh, one of the organizations I advise, Software Carpentry, we see that everyone's moving to Python. Everyone is moving to the modern stack. And that stack, uh, just in 2019, has reached an inflection point. Prior to 2019, Java was the number one programming language in adoption and growth in the world. We saw the inflection with Python mm -hmm. because it's really easy to get started. TensorFlow 2.0 just came out in May 2019. In June 2019, PyTorch launched a hub so that you can you know, create just in a few lines of code, a full neural network. So I think there's an evolution. And the evolution, particularly with labs, is that research no longer needs a supercomputer. And research no longer needs to be locked behind closed doors, but it can be opened up and it can be part of the open source community. With Argon, for example, a lot of their research that they do with CERN and Fermilab and other labs around the world, all the code is on GitHub. Right, And some of those repositories have up to 200,000 commits. Think of that, how many researchers committing and updating code base. And it's important to democratize science across the world. Yeah, and bringing it, the opening up of, of all that and getting it out of, of the lab, I think it strikes me as a change in disposition where a lot of that stuff was proprietary and kind of locked up at the university level, at the you know national sort of lab level, like you're like you're talking about, and even, you know, private companies would have sort of said, hey, this proprietary nature, like, is so important. We've invested so much in this. And you're just seeing, like, I mean, 2019, right, you know, Microsoft and, you know, major, major companies are just going, hey, all in on open source, and they can afford it. You know, I mean, they're going to bankroll, you know, a great deal of this stuff. Now we have the pros and cons, you know, coming out of the community and saying, well, what, what's the impact going to be, you know, and all that. But I tend to be one that says, you know, we'd rather be overfunded than, than underfunded all influences, you know, aside, maybe there could be some, some negativity there, but the, the community tends to shake that out. A lot of companies, you know, arguing over like open source licensing and everything now, you know, so there's a lot going on there, but let's just say that in general, that's a good thing. You know, you talked about off mic, you know, sort of your work 2.0 thinking. And I, I have to think that that comes in a lot with the educational mindset, the problem solving, you know, so how do I bring myself to the next level? How do I work on these new emerging technologies? Everybody wants to do this. This is a side project now for everyone. You won't be able to avoid 
big data, data science, machine learning, AI, it's just going to become the thing, just like, you know, HTTP, like this is what we do, right? So, you know, just talk about that, you know, like how do I orient my brain as a learner into this space? If you package all these words together and you think about the future of learning, it's no longer society where you have to be in the classroom and physically learn a topic from an instructor. Education Dive in June 2019 showed that over 66% of new college learners are studying within 50 miles of their house online education over a physical campus if given the choice. People want flexibility. Students want the opportunity to learn on their own time and their own dime. And I think there's so much to learn But when you get to have a program that has researchers, Mm -hmm. has faculty, you're able to learn from the best. And I've had the opportunity to work with some of the leading boot camps, both with in-person online education. I can definitely say the experience is just as good online. But if you're going to go for online education, you need mentorship. If you're going to pick a program, make sure whether that's a faculty advisor, an instructor from a boot camp you're able to have at least a weekly call of 30 minutes that you can digest material and get your questions out there. I think one of the biggest fears that both students and workers have about the future Mm -hmm. of work and the future of education is it's becoming less personal, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can bring video into your remote engagements. You can choose to schedule time with those you work with and those you study from, but it's on your own time to be proactive. So I always tell learners and workers, step up to the plate, schedule time with your boss, schedule time with your advisor. That's what they're getting paid for, to support you in your success. And when we're thinking about learning, whether it's any of these terms, data science, AI, machine learning, we can bundle them all together. It starts about starting somewhere But it's also about setting a goal. If you just want to learn, that's good for the first couple of months, getting exposure, especially if you're non-technical generally. But sooner or later, you have to set goals such as, I want to build an app that integrates this data. I want to build a prediction system to determine whether a loan will get approved or rejected. The more specific you go, the more real your outcomes will be. And how are people sorting out those problems? You know, one of the conversations I've had a lot of times, you know, with companies or, you know, AI sort of experts is the first thing you ought to be doing, particularly from the business context, is sort of saying how and where, if at all, does this apply to my business? Where is this type of technology going to interrupt or disrupt my business, if at all? I mean, there may just be some places that it doesn't you know, apply, but it isn't the kind of thing that you and I were talking off mic about, you know, like everything has a hype cycle, right? You know, in every business, you know, your local plumber had to do an ICO last year, but now they don't. And that's good probably for everybody. So how do you advise people on the, just doing the thinking necessary to say, Hey, how and where does this apply to my world so that I, I can maybe start to invest a little bit in education or in proof of concept or, you know, any of those things? So I I recently had an episode with one of the principal managers of Microsoft AI Cognitive Services, Noelle LaCherite, on my AI podcast, Humane. And what we talked about is that AI is going to augment businesses, not disrupt 
businesses, at least in the near term. So what that means is if you're thinking about computer vision, facial recognition, there's now a lot of open source tools that you can begin to integrate that into your company. If you're thinking about chatbots, if you're thinking about natural language processing, you can start to integrate, but it's a nascent industry, so it's just beginning. We're entering a new digital workforce, and this is a digital workforce where both how we capture data and how we translate those results are going to be everywhere in the fabric of society. I think that's going to run up until at least 2040 or 2050 as sensors get everywhere, as society becomes a renewable system, um, as all this integrates. So although there's this fear of robots replacing my job and the technology changing so fast, I think in the near term, that's not an issue because we're going to be redeploying into new jobs. Deloitte's human capital management report in April talked about the future of work as super jobs. So jobs where we're doing two or three functions of what analysts might've done in 2005 at Goldman Sachs. Because they don't have to do a job that requires 80% rekeying information from one system to another or what have you, you know, all the the piping and infrastructure and ETL and data capture, that's just going to be part of the ecosystem. So then you can kind of say, hey, I'm starting much further down the pipe to the right there as I'm doing that analysis kind of job. And I'm doing the things that really computers can't learn how to do. I mean, maybe ultimately we get to our our general AI, you know, down the road, but it's going to be a while, right? And so the raw compute power is is our friend until you know, maybe Terminator comes around and everything, you know, goes south. But this is not really the thing that that we need to be concerned about in the near term. Yeah, we have this whole deep fake phenomena, which in the news, everyone's been seemingly scared about. And one of my favorite examples of showing what's possible, there's this YouTube channel just came around a couple months ago called Control Shift Face. So the Control Shift Face YouTube channel says, let's take a comedian like Bill Hader and have him do his Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation. And live during that, almost unnoticeable to the human eye, his face changes from Bill's to Arnold's. And that's all done with AI. And some might say, oh, that's creepy, that's scary, that's cool. So it is interesting the pace that the technology is changing. And that's happening with video and audio and text. But I don't think there's a big fear about that causing disruption to society yet because it's not automated. When we go back to that example on the Goldman Sachs analyst, you go back to the 1990s, there was automation, right? We had scripts and macros and reports and older analytical tools like Crystal and Click and whatnot. Now it's these tools that just got bought for billions of dollars. Why did Google pay almost $3 billion for Looker? Why did Salesforce pay over $12 billion for Tableau? These softwares were bought because they can help you automate your reporting and then augment the human intelligence. So I think that's the direction we're moving. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see right there the value that companies are placing on the human interface layer. You know, these are not things that will exist outside of human interaction. The whole point is that these are companies that have traditionally found ways in better and better ways to display and interact with data that on the back now we can make you know, multiple leaps better and better, but you still need to visualize it. Well, why would you need to visualize it? If it was automated and, and the human was out of the loop, we wouldn't value that visualization and analysis layer. So right there, there's a lot of people that are 
going to be needed to, to start to figure out all the, the things that come out of that vast data explosion. We're much better at collecting data still than we are about getting data out and turning it into something that, that we can actually make predictive or automated choices based on. So I think that that is the lesson that I draw from the high valuation there, that we're valuing the human interface layer at a very high multiple, which I think is indicative of the, the future of where that analysis labor force is going to go. It's super important. And when you look at these companies like Looker and Tableau, they did not only have an applied data science and AI division and a sales engineering division, they had a research division. They had their own internal think tanks and labs and innovation centers where they're able to look at the evidence of what's coming out and implement it into their products. When you're an executive at a company and you're starting to think about how do we transition into a digital first company that includes AI products, it's important to know that when you're thinking of your 30, 60, 90 day plan quarterly and how that evolves over the years, that you're not just saying, let me hire a few staff data scientists to build out certain products and become the new data analysts or the new business intelligence experts, but that you're also bringing in researchers. Because otherwise, all you've done is you've had these super jobs, right? These new analysts who can also work with Python and can automate systems, but you're not going to stay up to date on what's cutting edge. So I think every organization can always have some researchers, have that bleeding edge, if you will, because then you can come to the roundtable with your executive leadership team on a monthly, quarterly basis and say, oh, yes chatbots. There's all these new APIs that just came out. Let's think about trying one for our website. Let's A-B test it. Let's take it to the next level. So yeah, I think it's really important to be exploring these technologies and thinking of it as an investment for the future of your company. If you just think on the short term and you look at your profit and loss, you'll say, wow, we're spending a lot of money on data science and AI, but it is an investment and having longer term goals. Yeah, absolutely. And you could see that what's neat about it is all this stuff, you know, so the virtual and physical edge now, it's like it's not massively expensive to dip your toe in that, that water. We're talking about the chatbots. I mean, these are things that you can integrate, you know, with a, a couple of lines of JavaScript calling a service, right? And you can pay on a monthly basis and just see what it does when you start to actually play with it. So I think it, it's terrifying until you know that you can start to consume these things as services. And uh, you can turn it on and off and you can test it. Maybe it didn't make any difference. Maybe it turns out all the people who come to your site are not even good leads, but at least you knew something and you started to learn something about your business. But that's going to take that human intuitive layer as well. So let me let me ask about the podcast. So Humane Podcast, you have interviewed what some 50 some odd experts in in AI. What trends do you draw? You know, when you look back at those guests. I mean, you've kind of been all over the map, but just like we have with many different experts, what should people be paying attention to, you know, now that you're sort of macro collecting all that knowledge? I think one of the biggest trends is what we've also seen out of Stanford with Fei-Fei Li is that we're moving into a human AI-based society. 2016 and 17 was just understanding that this term AI exists. 2018 was playing around with all these tools and, and seeing what damage or good that they could cause. And now in 2019, it's beginning to mature and we're seeing real implementation. Mm -hmm. um, but with all these thought leaders, what we try to do is debunk the magic behind AI. 
Traditionally, people say, oh, there's black box AI. It's all closed loop. I like to say, let's open up AI. And all these systems are powered by humans. There's a really great company that was called Crowdflower, which pivoted into figure eight. And they uh, built a great organization that would label data with workers around the world. Another one is called Cloud Factory in the UK. And they also have these cloud workers that help with computer vision and NLP to target and label data. So these are some of the individuals who I talk about on the podcast of opening up AI and realizing that the magic you hear about, some of it's marketing, but it is all real and it's happening, but some of it's happening slower than we expect. So I think often in society, when we think of the near term, we overestimate the progress that can happen. So we're like, oh, we can have self-driving cars by 2025. And, and that may happen, but there's been a lot of hurdles we still have to overcome. But to say, I don't know if by 2050, you know, we're going to be on Mars. We might be on Mars way sooner than 2050. So in the long term, we usually underestimate the potential of technology. Sure. And I bet, you know, all of our predictions, like the flying car, you know, it's just like ultimately becomes like that's not even where it goes. But we didn't predict what these core root functional technologies actually brought us until someone implements something novel. You kind of go, duh, wow, like nobody thought of that. And they, they tend to be the easier solutions that make the hugest difference. All right. Very important stuff now. I'm going to shoot you into the lightning round. Okay. Are you ready? These are critical questions. Let's do it. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. What are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I am reading Superhuman, which is a pretty cool AI book. I'm also reading Amy Webb's 2019 AI trend report. It's a 380-page report on all trends in 2019 from blockchain to AI. Um, she's a cool thought leader in New York City, teaches at NYU, and has the Future Tech Institute as well. You have to get a link to that one. Very cool. What can you not live without? What can I not live without? Coffee. Yeah. Popular answer on this podcast. What's the last thing you Googled for work? Last thing I Googled for work was how to, in my bash RC file for Linux, to make Conda through Miniconda auto-populate by initializing terminal. This was at an Argon workshop, and we had students on Mac, Linux, and Windows operating systems. So we we're just trying to automate the environmental variables. That's an outstandingly specific answer. I love it. All right. So I don't know if you are a fan of The Office. I am. So as you know, in The Office, Jim is the office antagonist and Dwight is the office heel. And Jim is messing with Dwight in a classic episode and he's sending faxes to Dwight from future Dwight. So messing with coffee's poison, you know, things like that. Right. And so I like to ask all my guests, if I were to hand you one piece of paper and a big, thick, black Sharpie, and I need you to write a note. You are now future David, and you're going to fax back to past David. What do you write on that one piece of paper? So I love this question. Um, I used to do this thing where every year I would do a reflection and then get that sent to me in the future, one to two years in the future, and see it. I thought it was fascinating, but having now been in the industry for almost 10 years, I think the one word I would just say is execution. Everything you're doing, execute, execute, execute. And if you do that and you stay focused, that's awesome. David, lots of fun, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate the insights, and uh, we look forward to more in the future. Thanks so much, Ledge. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. 
If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.